Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Victoria Hausman, author of the book American Classicist, The Life and Loves of Edith Hamilton. Victoria, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yes, I'm an associate professor of history, and my main area of specialization actually is modern British history, but uh, I found that Edith Hamilton drew from a lot of British authors in her work. I live in River Falls, Wisconsin, which is just outside the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Well, yeah, that link definitely comes across in your book, but at the same time, it's fascinating that you as a specialist in modern British history, would undertake a biography of an American classicist. What drew you to Edith Hamilton as a subject and what led you to undertake, in particular, a biography about her life? I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is essentially Edith Hamilton's hometown. And I encountered mythology in high school Latin class and I loved that book. And it was uh, rather mysterious to me that at that time in Fort Wayne, there wasn't much uh, talk about Edith Hamilton or the Hamilton family. Uh, I later learned that none of the houses in which they had lived had uh, survived the passage of time. But I was curious about this person who wrote so brilliantly and who was from Fort Wayne. And then eventually I read The Greek Way and I was hooked from there. I I thought it was a a fascinating examination of her early years in particular, because as I was reading your book, the the images that kept popping to mind were were very uh, Tarkington-esque. I kept... The way the way you wrote up the, the description of her her family background or early years, it just brought to mind what I remember from from the images I remember for that that Orson Welles had in, in, in Magnificent Ambersons of this of this genteel family, this upper class Midwestern family, and and and, and the the and the, some of the challenges that she faced in terms of you know where they were in 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 terms of what was happening to them socioeconomically and her efforts to get an education, which was in itself a challenge for for any woman at the time. Time, but even more so for a woman who oftentimes had to fight for the means. Yes, well, of course, Booth Tarkington was from Indiana as well. So the comparison is very apt. But yes, uh, the family did fall on financial hard times. And this is always given as the explanation for why she and her sisters were allowed to pursue so much formal education. And I think that there's a, a lot of truth to that, that the idea that these sisters would have to support themselves is one reason she and her younger sister, Margaret, went to Bryn Mawr College. But I also think uh, the influence of the family was important in just encouraging women's education. Her father had started her on Latin when she was about 10 years old and before that bankruptcy uh, took place. So there was already an interest in women's education. And I think that's seen in her mother's family, the Pons. Uh, where some of the uh, daughters in the uh, Coles family, which were who were closely related to the Pons, were also very independent, 
educated women who became suffragists as well. I, I want to get into that in a little bit more detail in just a moment, but I, I was wondering if you could take us a step back and explain a bit about uh, her family background and uh, Edith Hamilton's uh, childhood. And in particular, what led her to get into classical studies? Because you did mention Latin, you did mention the educated background, but what led her to choose that as a path in terms of, or what, what, what kind of really excited her interest in particular in that field? Yes, well, she was particularly drawn to Greek after she started it. And that must have been at some point after her father started to teach her Latin. But uh, she was quite fascinated with Greek from the beginning and the Greek language as a way of understanding Greek culture. So from the time she was a teenager, she's intrigued by ancient Greek verb structure, for example. And she says, well, people who created verb structure like that must have been very fascinating. And, and then her father was uh, always drawn to the theater. And uh, she, from very early on, seems to have been drawn to the great tragic plays of the Greeks as well. So she's interested in this. And she, as you've uh, mentioned, she is getting an early education in Latin. She's she's learning Greek, and and, and this is something that is, you know, some, uh, not uncommon for people uh, of you know the 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 the, the socio political uh, elite at the time. When does she make that decision to go and get a college education, and what are some of the obstacles that 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 she faces in doing so? Yeah, well, sometime after she left Miss Porter's school in 1886, she became interested specifically in Bryn Mawr College, which had just opened the year before. Now, she did have an older cousin, Catherine, who was interested in going to Bryn Mawr College, but never uh, was able to do so. And so I think some of the barriers Edith Hamilton encountered and why she didn't start college until she was uh, 22 are just, uh, well, financially, the family uh, was still suffering from the bankruptcy and her younger sisters, uh, Margaret and uh, Nora, were to spend some time at Miss Porter's school as well. So there were a lot of tuition expenses. And then uh, secondly, she really wasn't prepared to enter Bryn Mawr College, which was uh, quite academically rigorous as it was supposed to be. She didn't have enough uh, knowledge of Greek. Uh, and so she had to spend time with a tutor and she uh, also just had to mature a bit. It wasn't uncommon for women in the late 19th century to start college later at around the age of 22 instead of around the age of 18. Now, you've referenced Bryn Mawr College, and it's an institution that looms very large in Edith Hamilton's life. I was wondering if you could perhaps, uh, by way of, of providing some context in advance of where we're, uh, of, 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 you know, discussing her, her later life, if you could explain a bit about Bryn Mawr College, uh, some of the key personalities involved with it, and uh, its distinction between that and the school that Edith Hamilton will end up working at for uh, much of her life? Yes, well, Bryn Mawr College was meant to provide women with the same quality of education as men. 
it was actually uh, provided for in the will of a Quaker doctor, Joseph Taylor, who uh, was disappointed by all of the uh, bloodshed of the Civil War. And again, he was a Quaker. He didn't fight in the Civil War, but he did uh, serve in the Civil War as a medical doctor. And he thought uh, only women would be left to run the country, to run society uh, with all of the uh, male de uh, deaths that occurred because of the war. And so he left money in his will for the endowment of Bryn Mawr College. And then again, he really wanted women to have the same educational opportunities as men because they were gonna have to, as I said, run uh, society in the wake of the uh, brutal conflict. Uh, but uh, Edith Hamilton, of course, never knew Joseph Taylor. She knew M. Carey Thomas, who became the second president of Bryn Mawr College. And Thomas was also of a Quaker background, a prominent Baltimore Quaker family. And Thomas was uh, equally determined that women should have the same educational opportunities as men. And whatever Thomas's uh, faults, and they were many, she was really the person who opened up graduate education in America to women. She was uh, determined that women should have the opportunity to pursue graduate work as well as uh, undergraduate work. And then classics was, of course, the uh, traditional education of the upper class man. And so if women were to have the same educational opportunities as men, they had to demonstrate their uh, ability to understand uh, the classic languages, Latin and Greek. So women finally get into classical education in the late 19th century, really just as it was starting to become, I think a little bit less important for men to have that uh, education in the classics. But Bryn Mawr College certainly did uh, loom large in her life. I think of her relationship with Bryn Mawr College as beginning uh, in 1891 when she officially entered it and lasting really until 1922 when she retired as headmistress of the Bryn Mawr School in Baltimore. And the Bryn Mawr School was of course intended to be a preparatory school for Bryn Mawr College and students had to pass the Bryn Mawr College entrance exams to officially graduate from the Bryn Mawr School. And uh, Edith Hamilton was very successful in convincing Baltimore families uh, to send their daughters to this academically rigorous preparatory school. You make it very clear that Bryn Mawr mattered a great deal to uh, Edith Hamilton in terms of education, but you also explain that it wasn't the only uh, place where she received uh, a, higher, uh, a higher education. And I thought your, your description of her time in Germany was also interesting because it showed how challenging it was for women to get an education, not just in America specifically, but within the Western world itself. And yet it's also, it struck me as an interesting statement about her that she really pushed and persevered in terms of getting that instruction, even if it didn't have quite the same rewards as it would have for a man. Yes, that's true. Uh, she could only be an auditor at the University of Leipzig, uh, which was uh, preeminent in classics. And uh, she studied there for a few months uh, she was a little disappointed in uh, the strong emphasis on philology at Leipzig, 
Uh, but then she went on to Munich and uh, her admission into the University of Munich was even debated in the German Reichstag at the time. Uh, <laughs> but she, uh, of course, was admitted in the end. So you talk about her education. You, you look at her time as uh, the headmistress at Bryn Mawr School. But you also talk, uh, address an aspect of her life that, as you explain, is really underappreciated, which is her political activism. And for people who are familiar with the area, with the era, they, they know about the progressive period. They, they know about progressivism. And as you explained, she was very uh, committed to progressive activism. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon what drew her to that and what causes in particular she braced and what they say about her interest and, and how they fit within her overall perspective uh, on, on, on the, you know, the world and, 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 uh, and society. Well, yes, she came from a line of suffrage activists. Actually, her paternal grandmother had hosted Susan B. Anthony on Anthony's various visits to Fort Wayne. And there's even a story that at the age of five, Edith Hamilton was placed on Susan B. Anthony's lap. And she would have uh, been able to see Susan B. Anthony at uh, Anthony's last great suffrage convention, which was held in Baltimore in 1905. And uh, by then, Susan B. Anthony was quite elderly and passed away a few months later. But uh, as headmistress of the Bryn Mawr School, she had a, a certain platform in Baltimore uh, to speak about women's issues. She had to be a little careful because uh, not all of the parents of Bryn Mawr School students uh, believed in uh, women's suffrage, but M. Carrie Thomas, again, by then, president of Bryn Mawr College, was a dedicated suffrage activist and uh, was pleased that Edith took such a role in the suffrage movement. But uh, Edith, I think, was a little on the uh, conservative side of activism in the progressive era. I really found only two causes in which she was very active. One was uh, women's suffrage, which of course uh, allowed women to be full citizens by giving them the right to vote. And then compulsory school attendance laws. She worked for those. Uh, again, of course, as the headmistress of a school, she had uh, authority to speak on education issues, but she pressed uh, the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland to pass compulsory school attendance laws. And that was a, a cause she cared about a great deal, I think, because of her commitment to the idea of individuals as citizens and how can they be citizens if they lack at least a basic education. And even as uh, World War I broke out in Europe, she wrote an interesting letter to the Baltimore Sun saying Germany had a, a strong education system, training its citizens, and America with its wealth of uh, immigrants actually needed a good public education system even more than Germany did. So she was uh, committed to those two causes the most, I would say. Well, again, many in her family 
were committed to other aspects of the progressive era activism. She had a cousin named Agnes Hamilton, who is still remembered for her efforts to get child labor laws passed, for example. That commitment to education is one that I, I think informs nicely what she does when she retires. In a sense, she uh, and, and this is so often the case with so many uh, people who are passionate about education, they don't stop being educators. She just simply transitions from being a headmistress and a teacher to being an author. And, and I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what led her to undertake that transition, especially in a time when women were not necessarily known for writing, uh, you know, academic works, uh, historical works that, that explored the past. What 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 inspired her to do that? And, and why uh, and, and, and how easy was it for her to have her uh, first uh, efforts accepted by publishers? Yeah, she wanted to be an author from the time she was a teenager, really from her days at Miss Porter's school in uh, the early to mid 1880s. But I think several factors prevented her from writing. Of course, she was always uh, very busy as headmistress of the Bryn Mawr School. And then she also had a, a companion who was a writer, Lucy Martin Donnelly. And for a long time, I think she really believed that Lucy's writing talent was superior to hers. And so these factors really intimidated her from uh, embarking on a writing career. But uh, right away when she's retiring from the Bryn Mawr School, she says she's going to go back to the study of ancient Greek she just wasn't really sure uh, what she was going to do with that. And uh, it took this move to New York City and this involvement in theatrical circles in New York City to get her to start writing about the great tragic playwrights of ancient Greece and explaining uh, the difference between, say, Aeschylus and Euripides to her friends. Uh, in the theater world who were actually quite interested in reviving ancient Greek drama and putting on productions of ancient Greek drama that would appeal to the public. So she began to write about uh, Greek tragedy and uh, she did have a friend who was associated with Theater Arts Monthly magazine who got that article on tragedy published in the magazine. And the magazine was actually uh, very closely connected to the publishing house of W.W. Norton. And several people who wrote for the, uh, Theater Arts Monthly magazine did publish with W.W. Norton. And she was introduced to Warder Norton himself, the founder of the publishing house. And he was uh, quite interested in adult education and saw her expertise on Greek tragedy as a, uh, as a good subject for a book for, again, an adult audience hoping to learn something about Greek tragedy, but not actually having access to the study of ancient Greek. So really her path was uh, fairly smooth towards publication once she fell into theatrical circles around Gramercy Park in New York City. Hmm. So this brings us to uh, the books she writes, which is how most people today are, are, are familiar with her and, and, and her legacy. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about the books, like what 
you know, led her to choose those subjects? What did she write about? And 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 about how her books were received by the reading public? Yes. Well, the Greek way, as it was originally published in 1930, was a little bit shorter than the Greek way as we see it today. And she didn't have these political chapters on the historians such as Herodotus and Thucydides. It was really a book that was conceived within this audience of uh, theater people in Gramercy Park. And its focus was really the great tragedians and uh, defining tragedy. And uh, uh, actually it was uh, very well received. The uh, publishing house of W.W. Norton was quite pleased with its uh, success. It was chosen uh, by the American Library Association as a good book for libraries to acquire. So Warder Norton tells her that's where several hundred uh, sales. And uh, it was a time, again, when there were some efforts to revive ancient Greek drama and perform it on the Broadway stage. And then uh, Warder Norton suggested that she write the Roman way as a companion book to the Greek way. And uh, really, though she wrote the Roman way quite quickly, she doesn't really quite feel the affection for the Romans that she did uh, for the Greeks. And this is really the only book Warder Norton ever suggested to her that she actually finished writing. Uh, and then he wanted another book on uh, ancient Rome that never did get finished uh, because the Great Depression happens, the Nazis come to power in Germany. And uh, she's concerned about the spiritual welfare of society. And uh, she's concerned about the Jewish contribution to Western civilization. And so she wrote on uh, the Old Testament prophets, the prophets of Israel, as it's called. And I think in some ways, it's maybe the hardest of her books to read or the hardest to sort of tease out the meaning, but uh, it's very clear when reading her letters that she started it out of uh, these twin concerns, uh, financial devastation, causing hardship, and uh, the rise of the Nazis and her objections to the Nazi treatment of the Jews. Uh, and then uh, she finally uh, published her translations in uh, three Greek plays in 1937. And really, W.W. Uh, w. Norton had planned to publish so sooner, but she had become increasingly reluctant to publish them as she found translations of ancient Greek tragedies, really the work of Robert Fitzgerald and Dudley Fitz that uh, she liked and uh, thought was actually superior to her work. But uh, Warder Norton published uh, her translations of Greek tragedies and then she received uh, an, an offer uh, from an editor at Little Brown to uh, write the mythology book. Uh, and by then uh, she was ready to branch out from W.W. W. Norton. Uh, Norton wanted another book on tragedy and she didn't want to <laughs> write that. So uh, she, she took the uh, mythology book uh, project that was offered to her. Uh, and uh, what is very clear is that uh, her partner, Doris Fielding Reed, in her book, 
sort of portrays the idea of this mythology project being laid at Edith's feet and she uh, accepts it. But when one looks at the uh, correspondence in the little brown papers at Harvard, one sees actually Edith uh, really urging her uh, new publisher, Little Brown, to accept her as the author of this book or the uh, editor uh, involved in that, Raymond Everett, uh, really sees how eager she is to take it on. So there's a little bit of um, difference in the story as it appears in the primary sources and in Doris's autobiography. But uh, the... Uh, the mythology book, uh, of course, is her lasting legacy, really. And uh, she claims in her letters at the time that uh, she doesn't really know that much about mythology. She's going to have to do some <laughs> research, but she really did want to write that book. And then, of course, World War II escalated while she was writing it. And Greece was invaded by the Nazis. And I think that really shows through in the mythology uh, book that she wrote. And that gets to something that I, I thought was especially fascinating because I, I sometimes had this this image, and I'm not going to say it's an accurate one, of 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 you know scholars of uh, you know the ancient past who sometimes uh, tend to be remote from modern concerns, but. As you demonstrate in your book, not only is uh, Edith writing these books as a way of making the past accessible to her readers, and she's definitely writing, uh, I don't, I don't want to say this in a derogatory, but she's writing for a popular audience, but she's also, her her, her decisions and 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 her, her focus are, are very much reflective of, of, of her response to the times. I mean, she, she's very much writing in a way that are not just, she's not trying to just educate her audience. She's also trying to provide guidance to showing how the past can help people in uh, the 1930s. And then as you go on to demonstrate the the, the post-war period, how they can use an, the, the ancient learning that, that, that she uh, loves so much to come to terms, to better understand, to better, to provide better guidance for, uh, readers, particularly American readers, uh, in, 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 uh, in her time. Yes, that was really something I wanted to emphasize in the book, because, uh, yes, yeah, she is writing mythology uh, at the time when the Nazis were powerful. And so uh, sometimes I've read uh, uh, surprise or uh, authors who are rather surprised about her interpretation uh, Prometheus as uh, the advocate of freedom and free speech, but it's quite understandable that she creates this kind of Prometheus when the Nazis were using uh, Prometheus in uh, for their own uh, for their own arguments that uh, he gave the fire of knowledge only to the Aryans, and uh, she wants to say no that uh, Prometheus is the person who stands up uh, against tyranny and for free thought. And she offers that interpretation of him in mythology. And there's a few other references really to what is happening in the world with the Nazi takeover of Greece uh, in the book, I think. And uh, in all of her books, especially uh, uh, after the prophets of Israel, there are these uh, references to what is actually happening in the world. And yes, how people could use the ancient past to understand the present. So in, in 
because of this, she ends up becoming not just a successful author, but she becomes a, a public figure. And, yeah. and that was the part of the book that I thought was uh, that 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 was another. Uh, you talk about something that was new to me, which is how she is in this uh, post-war social circle. She she's uh, you know she she's a a, a friend of of uh, General Wedemeyer. She has uh, Robert Taft attending her uh, her her uh, uh, her. Uh, parties that 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 Doris is is, is hosting and and it's especially fascinating because it, it shows how prominent she was in a way that we don't appreciate today it also though is fascinating because and, and this is something we hadn't really addressed is the fact that you know that, that Elizabeth uh, Hamilton or excuse me Edith Hamilton I'm sorry was uh she she was not heterosexual she uh, and, and you do uh, address that relationship uh, within the context of, of you know, the period and, and how, you know, that was not something that that was alienating. She was not a target of the lavender scare and, and how she was associating with circles that you would think would be critical of that, but but ultimately were very accepting of her, and, and which I, I thought spoke to just how important they saw her and her contribution to, uh, to, to the public discourse. Yeah, she was really the... A uh, person who disseminated uh, essential Western ideas to a society recovering from World War II and uh, uh, encountering the Cold War and the uh, social circle she had in Washington, D.C. valued her so much for that. Uh, and they there's really an absence of comments about her relationship with Doris. I was always hoping to find some sort of uh, comment by people in their Washington circle about her relationship with Doris, but there's very little. And a lot of it was just uh, privately written during that time. Uh, one has to look in Felix Morley's unpublished diaries, for example, for him to, to see him uh, comment on the relationship between Edith and Doris. But uh, yes, uh, it was a conservative social circle really, and yet uh, full of uh, members who were perfectly happy to come to her and Doris's house on Massachusetts Avenue. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm writing a biography of Sir Charles Thomas Newton, uh, who excavated Halicarnassus in the 1850s. Uh, so that's taking me back to Victorian Britain again. And also, of course, to uh, you know, the, 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 the engagement by the 19th and 20th century scholars with the ancient past. Mm -hmm. Yes, as well. Uh, obviously, as an archaeologist, he was interested uh, in uh, the Greek past, uh, particularly the Hellenistic period. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. I hope that uh, when you complete it, you have an opportunity to come back on one of our podcasts. I would like that. Victoria, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.